Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther, as always, joined by the wonderful Aubrey Gullick. Aubrey, how are you today? Doing well. Yeah, are you? <laughs> um, yeah, just working on tons of different stories and ideas, so playing a little bit of catch up, which is always good. Yeah, it always seems to be catch up. It's like uh, when you're in a relay race, usually the hundred, I think, and the guy who's trying to hand the the baton off to you is just faster than you, so you can't catch up to him. <laughs> you idiot, slow down. We're in the channel. We need to stay in the channel. Uh, a humbling experience. Don't ask me how I know, but. Uh, <laughs> We did not get disqualified, but there was a lot going on this week in our defense. And one of the bigger events of many was the um, the House finally figured out that it wanted a leader. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about this Louisiana man, uh, yes. Mr. Johnson? So uh, late or early Wednesday afternoon, I suppose. Um, uh, House Republicans finally decided to unify behind one guy, um, and that would be Rep. Mike Johnson from Louisiana, um, personal friend of Scott McKay's apparently, uh, which is great. So you got the inside scoop on that pretty early. Um, yeah, and he somehow managed to come out of pretty much nowhere. He was the deputy whip I was on the House Judiciary Committee and another subcommittee. And then like within a matter of just a few days went from being just another rep to um, unifying the House of Representatives or House Republicans, which nobody else had so far managed to do. He won by 220 votes to Jeffrey's 209. So pretty good um, margin. So yeah, and Steve Scalise, uh, as well as, um, oh dear, uh, Jim Jordan, both fell short. And there are some who say that more than anything, Johnson <laughs> succeeded because everyone was so tired of fighting that they're like, eh, he's good enough for the moderates and good enough for sort of the hardliners to the right. We'll run with him. Uh, does that seem fair or is that sort of a caricature of what was a longer effort to find someone that satisfied all of the conservative sensibilities um, in a fractured Republican House? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it's somewhat in between. So like um, Jim Jordan is definitely at least more openly conservative. He's also a bit harsher just in tone. He's more willing to say exactly what he thinks, exactly how he thinks it. Um, whereas like Emmer, who was the nominee for all of, I think, four hours on Monday, um, is much more moderate. Um, and I think if Scott McKay is to be trusted, Johnson is an all-out conservative with a gentler tone than Jordan. Um, and the gentler tone is kind of, you know, made friends for him on the moderate side. Um, but the, like, he is a hardline conservative, like he, you know, fiscal conservatism is his thing. And he's, I think he recently put out a set of principles. I don't remember all of them, but 
Scott's point was, they're all conservative principles and he's clearly prepared to like sit down and actually try to get things done. Um, but I think a bit of, uh, there was definitely plenty of exhaustion, especially among the American people. I mean, even when Jordan was the nominee, you know, two weeks ago now, a week ago, like apparently there were reports that um, congressional phones were ringing off their hook with people just like, okay, can you just get this over with? Like, just you like the House Speaker. I don't care who it is. Just pick somebody. Jordan would be great. <laughs> He's the nominee. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess the American people got what they wanted. They they wanted a speaker and they got one. Um, and I think I think it'll be good. Yeah, I'm interested. He's cast as a sort of Southern gentleman, as you said, uh, mild-mannered, while Scott affirms the man's uh, steel backbone. Um, and I believe Johnson came from the radio circuit. Uh, so he knows how to speak to an audience. He knows the Republican electorate because he spent time on the phones and radio uh, listening to voter concerns. Uh, he is not what I expected visually. He looks like he's a model for like Scandinavian recliners uh, <laughs> and that he has a lot of mahogany somewhere in his house, uh, which I guess he's a Southern gentleman. So maybe that, that all works out. Uh, but I appreciate a man who wears glasses uh, as one myself. Uh, so I guess we wish him the best of luck and it'll be interesting now that since the Gates eight uh, unseated the the House Speaker, uh, everything in Israel happened. Like it was pretty quiet. Gates ejected <laughs> our guy from California, McCarthy, and uh, suddenly Israel blows up quite literally and everyone's looking around like, oh crap, now we actually need leadership in a time where the Senate was Democrat, the, the White House was Democrat. So there wasn't, there wasn't much happening, to be honest. There wasn't an expectation that the House would do anything ever except quarrel and send sort of uh, wish lists off to the Senate to be stabbed through the heart. Uh, but now they need to move Ukraine funding, possibly, which is a debatable subject, as well as Israel funding. The Democrats want to combine those two because they really don't want many of uh, their peers to be put on the record as far as funding for Israel, because uh, many, the squad, probably foremost, uh, are obviously anti-Israel and many would say anti-Semitic and would uh, be on record uh, saying and doing as much uh, so they'd like to roll up the ukraine and the israel funding into one sort of omnibus of uh, foreign aid uh, well and what do you think is the best i guess the best way for republicans to kind of undermine that i mean all bills of you know those kinds of funding bills I think begin in the house anyway so republic they're going to start with republicans so like going forward what's johnson's uh, uh, like what's his playbook what could be his playbook yeah he's going to have to beat some 
Republicans over the head and say, hold the line, because the Republicans have the slightest of margins. What is it, 220? Uh, and they need 217 to pass legislation, um, 218. Yeah, that's majority. Uh, so he needs everyone on side. And there are going to be quite a few moderates who are in blue states who are getting phone calls saying, just move the funding. We don't care if it's together or separate. Just get the money out there. And these... Um, you know, these congressmen will be answerable to to their districts in a year. Uh, so, you know, they are on the hot seat. And Johnson's going to have to say, no, we're holding it because we need the Democrats to look as bad as they actually are. We cannot throw them a bone on this. And we need them to cave and say, OK, we'll do two separate things. And it's the Democrats that are then holding things up not the Republicans as much of the, you know, left-wing media would make it seem um, at first blush. So we're going to see if he has the steal, and we're going to see if the Republicans who all got on side to elect him are going to maintain um, through some really tough, choppy water uh, as far as it goes for elected officials. It is a good sign, though, that he was able to get, I think, the majority so quickly, pulled together so quickly and so unanimously. It's a really good thing that, I mean, like, that that that's a good point for the future. Yeah, I agree. And the only, the only Republican who didn't vote for him, I believe, was uh, Derek Van Orden from uh, Wisconsin, actually, the west part of Wisconsin. Uh, who is over in Israel, I believe. Uh, so he was absent. He did not vote against Johnson. He just said, I, I'm not there, I can't vote. So yeah, uh, if that's praise and voting is praise in its own way, good start. Good start for Mr. Johnson. Uh, you recently wrote a bit of a summary of the man and what the left is looking at him as far as weaknesses are concerned or potential weaknesses. Could you tell us a little bit about these election denier allegations or that he's anti-gay, uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, I had not actually heard the allegation that he's anti-gay up until like a few minutes ago, but the the allegation that he's like a MAGA denier or, or like a election denier or, you know, very pro MAGA. Um, I think it comes from his involvement surrounding January 6th. And as I understand the story, um, he was even before um, the election was in, like before the date, you know, January 6th, he was already planning on bringing up an amicus brief that, you know, just said, like the election was pretty irregular in these, I think, six states. Maybe we should look into that um, to the Supreme Court. And uh, of then Jan January 6th happened and he signed on to the amicus briefing, encouraged a bunch of people to, um, Trump had him encouraging people to do that. And so the left is now using that to like, you know, hammer him as an election denier and, you know, 
um, anti-Biden. I think Biden ended up coming out with a statement that was like, oh, yeah, I don't expect him to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election, <laughs> which like, of course he doesn't. Um, but yeah, it, like, it's very, the left and Democrats, especially in Congress, continually go back to January 6th. It's constantly a thing. They can't move beyond it. And never mind the fact that I think Johnson was prepared to bring forward some very legitimate concerns. Um, like he wasn't totally making a bogus argument or even denying the election. He was just saying there were election irregularities, which is a different. Right. I think it's important to point out here that he was preparing this in a uh, well before January 6th, something there's no evidence that he was aware of was going to conspire uh, or transpire, not conspire. Uh, so many spires, so little time. But I, I want to write, uh, read what uh, Scott wrote recently. Uh, quote, prior to January 6th, 2021, uh, the Capitol riot, Johnson was set to deliver an exhaustive argument about the substandard conduct of that election in multiple states. Not to claim that Joe Biden had stolen the election, but to make the far less assailable case that the six swing states, particularly in question, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada, violated their own laws in allowing illegal practices to take hold. Uh, so again, this was an argument of election security. It was not one of sore loserism, <laughs> I guess, uh, which I wrote about in my newsletter, uh, something that I have very little patience for. Um, but I think Johnson did what his party leader asked him to do, which is make the strongest argument that might have either an adjustment to the final tallies or what have you, but it was very much above board as far as I can tell. And you'll hear plenty to the contrary. But as far as we can tell, and those who know far better than a lot of commentators on MSNBC, he's a solid guy. He took the no for the, from the Supreme Court. He's like, okay, moving on. Um, and as far as the anti-gay stuff, I just that simply means at this point that he is in favor of traditional family structure, which is man, woman, married, having children, uh, running with that. Crazy stuff, I know. Uh, speaking of not trusting the media, you also <laughs> wrote, Aubrey, about uh, some of what's going on in the Middle East as far as AI and even beyond that, uh, that we can't trust our eyes, not only reading text, but also uh, surveilling images now. Yeah, um, this was something, this is something that's always kind of interested in me, like just the way that propaganda works. Um, and yeah, so there've been a series of images. Um, and I think that it divides out into about three different kinds of images. So there's like, there's AI generated images that are clearly fake, for instance, um, there's an image of a toddler that appears to be buried under rubble um, and or partially buried under rubble. And it's pretty clearly AI if you take anything more than a cursory glance. 
Um, I think the child's left hand has like extra fingers. The creases on its face are totally unrealistic, but um, that didn't mean that it didn't appear um, like people printed out enormous posters with this image on it. And then, you know, marched through Cairo on um, pro-Palestinian riots or whatever. And then a French magazine, Liberation, um, printed that and came under fire because it's a fake image. Um, and yeah, so there, there's that kind of image where it's like AI generated, it's clearly fake. They, I don't even think the image is recent. Like it first showed up in February of this year as like a, um, it, it was tied to some Syrian conflicts um, that were going on at the time. And then I think the second kind of image are just old images. Like there are images from past wars, past conflicts in the region and, you know, just in the Middle East in general. I think there was even one situation where there was like an image from Ukraine that ended up being used. Yeah, cartel images from the border, all sorts. Yeah. Any, any um, place there's human suffering, those images will come up at some point uh, in the coming weeks. Well, they yeah. have such emotional uh, weight to them that from a propaganda standpoint, it's exactly what uh, those pushing this stuff want. And they're pushing it to audiences who are already not only sympathetic, but just looking for a reason. Uh, we saw that with the rioting in 2020 as well, uh, with so many of these leftists going to topple statues or what have you. They didn't need a good reason. They just needed a reason. Uh, right. And so when you're considering cause and effect, these images are often raised as the cause, and then the effect is the writing. But the writing was going to happen. It was just waiting for something that could be passed off for a second as, as an understandable one. Um, which is frustrating coming from, you know, a conservative viewpoint where people should be responsible for their actions and, <laughs> you know, checking to make sure that everything is correct and um, verifiable. Right. And even just less seriously than, you know, riots or, you know, BLM type violence in the streets, like one image from a 2013 conflict was posted by Ilhan Omar and the caption that was with the image she didn't write the caption it was she had reposted the image and the caption and the caption was like child genocide in Palestine all caps and the image is from like 2013 so it's 10 years old and it's of children who are victims of a chemical weapons attack in Syria so like not at all the same conflict um but like coming from you know, a congresswoman is a fairly, it's a very serious allegation. And it's, you know, totally fake. So the fact that, you know, she didn't do research before reposting it, she just, you know, responded in that instant, reposted this thing, um, essentially put her name behind it. Of course, she's put her name behind plenty of, you know, anti-Israeli <laughs> propaganda. Yeah, it's it's just one of many instances for her, which again, I don't know what the future looks like, but eventually there has to be some sort of mechanism for 
Congress to censor its its members with this sort of proven to be incorrect within a matter of minutes posting because these are real positions of power with influence that give people all sorts of cover to do horrible things. And it's one thing if you're just some Joe Schmo on the street, you have your First Amendment right to be an idiot, um, something that I exercise all the time, and it's great. But when you're an elected official, you should be answerable to your party and the voter. And I want to make that explicit in that they're answerable to the voters every two years, unless there's some huge outcry. Uh, but in the meantime, you are um, a cog in your party machine. And these parties should have the power and the wherewithal to say, no, we, we can't have that. It's bad for the brand. It's bad for the country. And we're pulling you from the seats that you have. Uh, but all the incentives are in the wrong direction there, where someone on the left does a horrible thing. Rashida Tlaib says something horrible about the Jews. And then the right, as it should, goes, what in the ever-loving blankety-blank? And then the Democrats say, look at the Republicans. Uh, send in $5 to you know protect Rashida against the attacks of the right and all this. And it's a fundraising game at the end of the day. And it's despicable. Um, right, especially, well, and, and this issue has divided, I think, members of the Democrat Party, especially in government, because, you know, you do have the more extreme progressive left in the squad or whatever. And then you have people who are like, no, actually, like, Israel is in the right here. And, you know maybe we maybe we shouldn't be you know pushing false narratives or supporting terrorists um especially yeah fetterman has been surprisingly strong on this point um yeah which <laughs> there's been just a lot of weird alliances in the past couple weeks um but yeah mr mr hoodie as far as israel goes he's rock solid which you know bars have been lowered year after year but um you know credit where due i guess uh but aubrey your hottest take is that you don't like horror movies oh tell yeah. us about that so i think it was probably well it's, it's this entire month like every time you get onto a streaming platform whether it's like you know prime or anything else it's like horror movies non-stop it's all it's the spooky season. Every I know, I know, I get it. The thing is, I don't watch horror movies. I don't like them. I don't enjoy the adrenaline rush while I'm sitting in my bed. Like none of that is pleasurable to me. I have a very active imagination, so the post movie, post horror movie experience for me is no fun, and I don't appreciate it. Um, yeah, and <laughs> so I think personally, horror films should the at least the streaming company's algorithm should recognize that I don't like them and it should not subject me to like viewing the, you know, the, the poster for the movie. I think there's like a new one called Scream or whatever. 
and it, or smile. And it's got this lady with this creepiest smile. It's horrible. Um, and yeah, it like it's very, very vivid image in my brain, even though I haven't seen this movie and will never see this movie. It seems like something you should be able to toggle, um, yeah. especially for families with fairly young kids. Like you don't need what amounts to pornographic gore uh, on some of these posters, especially with streaming where there isn't the same sort of um, framework for ratings where you'd really never know what you're entering into uh, with the movie. And that with a lot of these, like Netflix, it'll automatically start running a trailer for you just as you scroll past these shows. And I don't know, I agree. I don't like scary stuff. I'm opposed. I have enough scary stuff in my head. I don't need to add to it. I sleep well at night and I, I just don't need that interrupted with anything crappy. That said, I do like suspense movies like uh, Shutter Island. Some might say that's a horror movie. I would say it's a suspense thriller, psychological thriller. And if the writing's good and it's not just there to scare and disgust you, there's room in that genre. But most movies are one cheap, two disgusting (laughs) and three uh porny sexually as far as and as as far as gore goes where like you just don't need to see a guy's head squashed all the (laughs) way through pulping it like i i get it like i understand where this is going i can invent that for myself uh you don't need to show me the eyeball hanging out and all that Uh, I will say, I got, I wrote that as an opinion in my newsletter, and I got a very kind response of somebody with a counter argument, and he made a very good point. And that's that modern horror and like horror in like 1930s or 1950s are almost two entirely different things. And he pointed out that, you know, back in the old days, horror was much better and worth watching, and it wasn't excessively you know, gory. It was really more in the class of like what we would now consider thrillers. And like, that's a fairly good point. I don't enjoy watching those movies, but I'm okay with seeing posters of them on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, like, yeah, mo- modern That's horror. your line. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Because like I watched The Birds. Uh, I think that was a crazy cool movie. Uh, and it allows your mind to run past the ending. Those are my favorite movies where you can kind of invent more of the world. It opens up enough and gives you sufficient information where you can do a lot with it. Uh, and then you can kind of make your own fan fiction after the fact. And yeah, again, it's not vile. Um, And I guess like the Twilight Zone kind of falls into that. Like the first episode of the Twilight Zone, you have this man in a capsule. Movies, I have never seen them. No, okay. Well, it's 13 minutes long, but he wakes up in a town that's completely empty. Like everyone disappeared. Like it was an evangelical rapture and everyone's just gone. And the toast is like popping out of the toasters and all that. 
And that's the sort of stuff I'm cool with. Um, so, you know, more of that, please. Uh, but anyway, we're going long on time. Aubrey, tell us, what's your pick of the week? Um, I think I'd have to say Scott McKay's uh, The Speaker We Need. He does a, does a great analysis of um, Johnson. And because McKay knows Johnson, it's a very... It has a personal touch to it, personal flair. You get a really good feeling for the kind of man, um, you know, Scott knows, which is great. Um, and it, it's always good to hear like the, you know, from, you know, on a man-to-man level, this guy's a real person, not a, just a figure um, on Capitol Hill. Dude's a bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's your recommendation? Uh. I don't know any dudes that I can recommend, but one bro <laughs> I'll recommend is uh, James McGee's, who I know is Jim McGee, uh, his piece that's time for an Asian NATO. And so he goes into it knowing that a lot of readers at the American Spectator are going to be skeptical of another international organization that seems to just be a nesting ground for all sorts of sort of anti-American ideas or objectives. And so knowing this, Jim goes in with a lifetime of experience in the highest levels of um, government and says, no, as far as Pacific leadership, China is eating our lunch. And that's something that we cannot afford especially with Taiwan being as important to us as it is, as far, and also many of the other countries in that kind of South China Sea orbit. So we're talking Japan, Korea, etc. Our life is much better for those countries existing and existing outside of explicit Chinese influence. Uh, and we should want to band together because we have such an obvious enemy where NATO doesn't um, all the time. And so it sort of invents <laughs> objectives for itself. And I guess you could apply that to the UN even more, where it's a, an organization in search of purpose. And so it just finds the stupidest purposes and spends stupid money, um, which none of us like to see. And then finally, what are you reading? What are you, uh, what might you be watching? What can you recommend to the people? Yeah, uh, not a book that I'm reading currently, but one that I've enjoyed in the past. Um, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. It's the third in his uh, Space Trilogy series. Um, I didn't, I know a lot of people love Paralandra. Not my favorite book for some reason. I just didn't appreciate it. Um, That Hideous Strength though, which is usually not people's favorite book, was a very good one um, that I really appreciated. Uh, What spoke to you about it? I've always kind of enjoyed the kind of um, futuristic, apocalyptic kind of novels like Father Elijah or, um, you know, Cannibal for Leibovitz. There's a few really, really good ones. And... C.S. Lewis's 
view of modern of the modern age of its secularism but also you know his he he's very creative with what the end of the world or what an apocalypse could look like and i really appreciate that um i also love his ties into english mythology um into the king mm. arthur stories i really appreciate that and i think that really comes to play in that hideous strength in a way that it does like it does play in the other two but it's not quite the same um it's it makes more sense once you're on english soil to be talking about king arthur than it did you know on okay so i've only read out of uh, out of the silent planet and my takeaway from that was it was it was philosophic uh but spare and i understand that the remaining two get much deeper uh, and raise all sorts of questions that the first one suggests maybe but he doesn't really explore uh so I'm looking forward to that, but I, I want to cut you off before there's a spoiler because <laughs> I can't I can't wait to read those books. Uh, well, well, for me, what I've been reading is Mark Helprin's latest, The Oceans and the Stars. Um, Helprin, I believe, is a Navy guy, but his writing is just uh, I. I'd call it cheesecake, but that makes it sound like it's almost nauseatingly rich. Good cheesecake. Yeah, just the right slice size of cheesecake. And if you like a little cherry on top, then maybe that's that's what we're going for. Whatever your ideal slice, slice of cheesecake is in your head, provided you're not lactose intolerant. <laughs> apply that to mark helprin's latest uh because man does he know the navy he knows how the government works um he's speaking from the inside but he loves america and he loves what our military is capable of when it has real leaders um Mm -hmm. and from the fictional standpoint he probably writes the best description of a woman in a sensual but not objectifying way. I know that's a big thing in literature is that men are, especially Stephen King, if you've ever read any of his books, he kind of starts at the chest and then occasionally <laughs> describes something else. <laughs> it's, uh, it might be a very male instinct, but I, I think it's off-putting to many. Mark Halperin does whatever, what, um, what King cannot do. And so he has mature, intelligent uh, protagonists and a world that resembles our own, uh, but written in such a delicate and beautiful way. It's just... It's a really good book for being like a Navy adventure book. Highly recommend. So anyway, uh, for Aubrey, I'm Luther. Thank you so much for listening to the Spectator PM podcast. (laughs) 